Good to see you all today. I'm so happy to be here. I was afraid it was April Fool's and I'd get up here and nobody'd be here. <laughs> April Fool's. <laughs> so, thanks for being here. We are in our fourth week of looking at First um, Peter. And we've been learning that Peter is writing this letter to encourage Jewish and Gentile believers to walk a life of courage and faith, even in the midst of persecution and suffering. And I mentioned the first week that when we're in a trial, what's our first thought? How to get out of it. That's our first thought. And I read this great illustration um, about Henry Nouwen wrote in one of his books. He knew some trapeze artists called the Flying Rudellas. And picture a trapeze, and, and one of them's the catcher that comes out on the trapeze. They're hanging by their knees and their arms around. The other one's called the flyer, and they're the one that just goes out into the air. And I thought it was so interesting because he said, when the flyer goes out into the air, they just sort of arc and just wait. And their job is to wait. And they should never try to grab the catcher. They have to wait for the catcher to grab them. And I thought it was interesting because um, it said here that his job is to remain as still as possible and wait for the strong hands of the catcher to pluck him from the air. And I thought that is what it feels like when we're in the middle of a trial. We are that flyer. And we're trying to grab that catcher, and the catcher wants to do it in his own timing for our good, and we're just left stretched out. That's okay. That's what we're going to learn today. That is a holy place to be. It's hard, but we have to wait for God to catch us with his strong hands and his perfect timing. I also mentioned that God is more interested in our holiness than in our comfort, which is something else that's hard for us to remember. And so in this study today, we're going to realize that if we focus on getting out of our trials, we are missing many opportunities that God has woven into our life that will bless us, that will bless others, and that will ultimately bring glory to God. Instead of asking, how can I get out of this? We should be asking, what can I get out of this? What does God have in store for me through this? So when suffering comes our way, we should be women that do this. So hard to do. Instead of women that do this. So today I want to look at why would we want to do this? What are those hidden opportunities God has woven into our suffering? First thing we can realize and helps us kind of start opening up our hands is that unjust suffering brings blessing and joy. And I don't say that easily, and I don't say that lightly, because I know some of you have suffered in ways that I can't even imagine. We all suffer. And so I don't take that lightly. I'm not saying suffering isn't hard. I'm not saying that we shouldn't grieve when we're suffering. Um, But the Bible teaches us that still, even in all of that, there is blessing. So let's look at some of those. And I want to preface all this by saying this is about suffering even when we're living a righteous life 
in Christ. Um, this is the only kind of suffering that is commendable to God. And we talked about Peter's readers, that there were different ways that they were suffering for their faith. Most of the time, this isn't happening to us. This is happening to people in other parts of the world. So we're going to just apply these principles of unjust suffering. When things happen to you and I that was not fair, that was not brought about by our own sin, we can take these same principles and apply them to our lives and be blessed by God. So look at verse 13 of chapter 3. Peter says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? And that's been translated a lot of different ways, but here's probably what Peter meant by that. It's an important truth for us to remember, just to start out at. Uh, When we are walking in the ways of the Lord, we will bypass certain trials. When we are eager to do good, people don't usually seek us out to harm us. So if we're walking in the ways of Christ we can avoid a lot of conflict in our life. That's Peter's point here. But we know he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 14. He's saying sometimes, even when we do that, we will suffer. Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Peter says here, even when you're doing right and you suffer, you are blessed. What's our first thought when we're suffering unjustly? God doesn't love me. Where is God? God is unfair. But Peter uses the word blessed here, which means divine favor. It's the same word used when the Gabriel comes to Mary, Jesus' mother, and then tells her she's going to have the Savior born to her, and she says, I will be called blessed among the generations. She's using the same word as is being used here. God's divine favor rests on us when we're suffering unjustly. And we want to say, how can I be that object of divine favor in these hard times? First of all, we grow a courageous heart. That's a wonderful thing. When we're being mistreated, our natural inclination is to be afraid. But unbelievers, that should be their trademark. They have a reason to be afraid. Lost people have fear. Peter is saying here, do not share in the fear of people who don't know the Lord. He quotes from Isaiah, which is on your verse sheet. Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread what they dread. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And so instead of allowing fear to take over our hearts in dark times, like those who don't know God... God uses our trials to say, how about coming to me? And when we get desperate enough, that's what we do. And the result is we begin to grow a heart of courage. We begin to fill our hearts with God. And on your outline, the more our hearts are filled with Christ, the less our hearts are filled with fear. 
You've all heard this quote before. We fear God so little because we fear man so much. That begins to change in the middle of trials. He says, sanctify Christ in your heart as Lord. Sanctify means to set apart. And what it's saying is our hearts are filled with so many things that really don't matter. When we go to God in our hard times, we are setting him apart from all those other things as Lord and ruler of our life. That is building our heart. It is God's favorite sanctuary, our heart. Some people think Peter wrote that here because he knew that these Christians were often not going to be able to get together to worship in um, a home or in any other kind of place because of persecution. So he's giving them this encouragement. You can do it in your heart. When things are hard, worship him. And when we're in that position of worshiping God in our heart, the position of man gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Trials are used by God to teach us keep man where he belongs, keep God where he belongs as sovereign and in control of our lives. When we do that, we will be exercising the spiritual muscles of our heart. We will develop a heart of courage. Look at Psalm 119. I thought um, this person's response to suffering was amazing. It was good for me to be afflicted, that I might learn your decrees. And I know, Lord, that your ways are righteous, and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Every week at Women in the Word, just like today, someone stands up and testifies um, to the goodness of God in their lives. This is another hidden Opportunity in the midst of our trials. Opportunities to testify. Trials bring that about. Um, Deb has talked before, Deb Haygood, about her grandfather who was a pastor, and he would go into a worship service and say, okay, it's time for testifying, and then he'd call someone out, Susie, testify about the Lord. And a woman would stand up and say something about the Lord, and Deb said she went to her grandfather and said, Don't do that because you might call on somebody and they won't have anything to say. And their grandfather looked at her and said, I know who loves the Lord. If you love the Lord, you always have something to say. Those are the people he calls on. We do that with each other, but have you thought much about the fact that that is an opportunity from God to share with lost people? To talk about God's faithfulness? to people who don't know God? What a wonderful opportunity for us, even people that are hostile to God. Telling our faith story of God's faithfulness is that hidden opportunity. And I love it when you see Christian entertainers do that or Christian athletes on the television. You know, they start talking about God and then the media immediately tries to change the subject. But isn't it great that they try to do that? That's our opportunity, and um, we're going to look at how we can do that in a better way. Did we read these verses yet? Let's go back to um, 15 again. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. 
You know, when you're telling your faith story to someone who doesn't know God, they can't really dispute you because it's your story. And you're telling it in love. And so you have someone that's listening. And the words Peter used in those verses don't refer to a formal meeting. They refer to informal, spontaneous conversations. He's wanting his readers to be prepared anytime, anywhere. Have that faith story ready to share with somebody who does not know God. We learn in those few verses a lot of things about witnessing here. First of all, we realize they're watching us. Non-Christians are watching Christians to see how we respond to those dark times in our lives. Peter says that right here. They're watching you. Secondly, he's saying be sensitive about it. Be sensitive when people are asking questions. His point is, it's not about you preaching in someone's face who is offended. It's about being sensitive to the Spirit of God moving in an individual who is asking you questions. When they open the door a crack, we can open it wider. But we have to be thinking about it. We have to be aware of those opportunities. I read the most amazing story some of you might have remembered about a couple. A woman went out to let her poodle out one night and a young couple came up with a gun made her go back in the house. The couples who owned the house were named the Sextons. This other couple decided to hold them hostage. They were in trouble with the law. The law was on their tail. So they're in the house with the Sextons with the gun. And the Sextons, see, this is an opportunity to tell our story. They were prepared. And it's the greatest story. I don't know all the details, but they began to share their testimony because they could tell this young couple were hurting and were lost. The couple listened. There was lots of tears. Then the couple decided, you guys go ahead and run out because we're going to take our lives because that's about all we have left to do. And the couple refused to leave. If I had a gun pointed at me, I don't know what I would do. But they continued to talk and love on them. Eventually that couple surrendered to the police. But before they did, they wrote a note to the sexton saying, thank you for your hospitality. (laughs) And they said, we are leaving you $135 because that is all we have to offer. Much love. And they signed it. I thought, gosh, what a great illustration, being ready. When that door's cracked or when someone's got a gun in your face, (laughs) be ready. Third, Peter says, be prepared to do this. You have to think through your story. If someone says to you, wow, that must have been hard, how did you get through that? And you haven't thought about that? You won't have much to share. So be ready to be thinking, in what ways did I see God's hand at work in these things in my life so I can be ready? And secondly, pray that he'll give you those opportunities to do that. It's not our job to make sure they all accept what we say. It is our job to testify because we love the Lord. That's what we do. Peter then says, show respect towards the people you're talking to, and reverence toward God. And I think what he means there is sometimes the manner in which we present something is even more important than what we say. 
I think the couple that were criminals were moved by the love and the spirit of the sextants who were sharing with them. And then fifth, when we walk away from the ways of God, Peter says, you are walking away from this opportunity. He says, if you want to talk the godly talk, stay firm in walking the godly walk. Because guess what else they're looking for? Ways that we are saying one thing and doing something else. So Peter says, live your life above reproach so the words you share have a lot of power and truth behind them. Some of the people that were coming to the Christians to hear their faith story were the very people who were slandering them and causing heartache. And I think that's an amazing thing. So he's saying, by your good behavior, even the Christians who are slandering you will shut their mouths and open their ears. That's what God's Spirit can do. Secondly, we learn, sub- thirdly, we learn submission to God's will. Look at verse 17. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, that's a hard thing to swallow. It's pretty much our nature to map out our life. This is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to have. This is where I'm going to be. And when those things don't happen, we get disillusioned. We get confused. We get bitter. You know, we even get mad at God, even though we've really never included him in our plans. We get upset. Trials teach us on your outline that God has a plan for our life that may not be our plan. What a life-changing discovery. It puts us on God's path that we were meant to be on, where we accomplish things for Him and we feel fulfilled and complete and we thought our life was wasted or we thought our life was ruined and God has planned to bless us. He has a different road for us to go. I've mentioned Johnny Erickson before um, because my mom's group is doing her book. May I just kind of put a plug in for this book? I've never read a book about suffering like this. When God Weeps by Johnny Erickson Tata. There's a couple in the bookstore, but she'd order you some if you wanted one. It is really a doctrinal work on suffering. Tons of scripture. It's just awesome. Anyway, you know her as a 17-year-old teenager. Lots of life. Lots of personality. Goes diving in uh, some lake or bay and breaks her neck. And she's been paralyzed from that day on. She had to get on a different path. Her suffering has made her understand how to submit to the will of God, and she lives a life that she never would have dreamed of. Salvation happens through her ministry. Compassion happens through her ministry. She sends wheelchairs all over the world. They go into the villages. They minister to people. But it wasn't an overnight thing for her. In fact, I want to read a couple of her thoughts. She's talking about God chiseling on her life. She says, I cannot afford to focus on the hammer and the chisel. I can't look around me and bemoan what God is chipping away. And my heart breaks to think of the many people who live their entire lives this way. They are eaten up by suffering. And for years I was. 
my wheelchair insisted, whined, and screamed for my undivided attention, and demoralized, I gave in. I allowed my wheelchair to define who I was, and all it accomplished was a dry and brittle soul. I didn't become a bad person. I just lacked passion for life. And then she says, yielding to the chisel is learning obedience from what we suffer. Our circumstances don't change. We change. The who of who we are is transformed like a form unfolding into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, and it's an image like no other. When Christ is unveiled in me, it's a unique sculpture. She has learned to submit to God's plan for her life, and God is using her. If a righteous God allows his children to suffer, but also wills that they should suffer, he must have a good reason for it. We submit to that even when we don't understand it. And here's just a few of the reasons, and I think they're all connected. On your outline, first of all, for his glory. You remember in the Gospel of John when the man who was born blind and he comes to the disciples, they come to him and Jesus is with him and the disciples say, okay, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? And you remember Jesus' answer? Neither. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. I would say that's Johnny Erickson Tata's story, too. Sometimes the suffering happens for our growth. Look at Isaiah. Actually, we always grow from it. Isaiah 48, See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. And James, Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And finally, we suffer for other people's good, which is easy for us to forget that. But I thought about even the early church. Remember Saul before he became Paul, and he was persecuting Christians. And the Bible tells us in Acts 8 that he was so persecuting them that they scattered. But it said, and when they scattered, they preached the gospel. They testified everywhere they went. Their suffering brought salvation to other people. That is another plan of God. And then the spirit of glory and of God rests on us. I just love that phrase. I love that promise. What a thing to remember in the middle of our dark days. The spirit of glory and God rests on us. Look at chapter 4, verse 12. Peter says, Don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, first of all, I was encouraged to know that we are in good company here. What's he realizing? They're shocked that they're suffering. 
They're surprised that they're suffering. Wait a minute. What about the blessings that come with the gospel? And that's what we say to ourselves sometimes. And Peter's saying, no, none of these hardships are going to interfere with God's fulfillment or purpose in your life. In fact, they're divinely appointed. And the right response is to rejoice because we participate in the sufferings of Christ and because the spirit of glory and God rests on us. And don't you think about the Shekinah glory here? The people in the Old Testament, God would manifest his presence by blanketing them, the temple and the tabernacle, with a cloud of his majesty and his presence to bring them um, great joy and comfort. And so I said the divine favor of God covers the faithful Christian that walks the path of suffering that Jesus walked another special manifestation of the presence of God through the Spirit is promised to us like the Shekinah glory to be with us, His very own presence. And let me say this, some people believe when it says the spirit of glory and the spirit of God that the spirit of glory may mean Jesus himself. And if that's the case, Peter is saying the spirit of God and the spirit of Jesus are on you. And so he's talking about the Trinity, all three in one. And he's saying when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it is the spirit of God and it is the spirit of Christ. But I want us to learn from our Savior who suffered. And I love it that every time Peter starts talking about suffering, have you noticed that pattern? He immediately goes into the suffering of Christ because he just loves and adores Christ and recognizes it is his suffering that blesses our life. It is his suffering that means our life and that means our future life with him. And I thought, what great timing to look at the suffering of Christ this Easter week. I love it that this fell on today. So Peter's been talking about undeserved suffering that is divinely ordained. Of course, Christ perfectly illustrates that. But then he demonstrates a pattern that we are destined to share. And in his pattern are some more woven, hidden opportunities for our lives. Look at verse 18 of chapter 3. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Um, I read one person who said that is one of the simplest and shortest statements that encompasses everything that Christ did for us in this one incredible verse. Um, I want to mention here, since we're talking about us suffering and Jesus suffering, that even though we have similar sufferings, in our principle, in the principle of it, and in our heavenly rewards, that we know Jesus' sufferings were very unique in character. They were unique in consequences. When he suffered for what he didn't deserve, he was the sinless, righteous one, dying for the sins of the unrighteous. On your outline, when Jesus laid aside self, he made it possible for us to be reconciled to God. And he did this once for all. We can't be exposed to judgment a second time for sins which have already been punished, like the 
animal sacrifices in the Old Testament that they had to continually sacrifice for sins. In fact, look at Romans 8. Um, Unfortunately, on your verse sheet, it says Acts 8. Just ignore that. That's an April Fool's. (laughs) There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I love the hymn, No Condemnation, Now I Dread. Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him. My living head and clothed in righteousness divine. So bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. The event of the cross achieved a final settlement of the issue of sins raised by the unrighteous. Look at Hebrews on your verse sheet. Christ has appeared once for all to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself, just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. He laid aside self to bring us to God, and this is the pattern that he left for us. We learn to lay aside self when we have suffered, and we invest in others. And if you're like me, you're thinking right now, no, when I'm suffering, I'm all about me. (laughs) I'm thinking about me when I'm suffering. God can do so much when we realize he has stopped me. He has stopped my life in its tracks. And this is a moment not to keep looking inward, but to look up and say, why? Why do you want to change in my life? What am I supposed to do in my life? If my life is a journey toward God, it makes us stop and look around and say, who am I taking with me? Who am I serving? What am I doing? How am I ministering? Where should I be laying aside self? And you guys probably can all picture someone in your mind that you knew who were walking this path really strong and confidently, and bam, God stopped them through some significant suffering in their life. And they're going an entirely different direction now. When we are suffering and we are stopped by God, we are humbled. Because we do a self-evaluation. And then God says, all right, now that you're humble, I'm going to use you in these ways. So when we lay aside self and begin to focus on others, we are following the pattern of Christ. And we are loving those who Christ died for. Look at verse 18 of chapter 3 again. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. 
Now, if you're like me, you read this passage and went, huh? This is hard. Okay. What in the world does this mean? So I studied it for us. I'm going to give you two of the most accepted interpretations. And then when we see Jesus, we're going to say which one was right. He'll tell us, and hopefully he won't say neither. Uh, (laughs) Let's look at it together. Verse 18, when he says Christ was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. Circle the word spirit. It's got two possible meanings. The Holy Spirit, which would have been the agent of the resurrection, Or some believe it means the spirit of Christ himself. In other words, at his death, his body was dead, but his spirit was alive. So this would be Christ's spirit. This first view holds that the spirit here means the Holy Spirit. And it says that Christ preached to spirits in prison. And this could be the people who disobeyed God during the 120 years that Noah preached to them about repentance and the coming judgment, and they chose to disobey and ignore him. So the spirits would be the souls of this wicked human race at the time of Noah. In fact, if you look at verse 19, where they mention the spirits, verse 20 really defines who they are. They disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. Now these people are imprisoned, awaiting the final judgment of God at the end of the age. But when did Christ preach to them? This view would hold that Jesus preached to these people by the Spirit through Noah at the time of Noah. And you remember the very first week we looked at chapter 1, verse 11, where it said the Spirit of Jesus preached through the prophets in the Old Testament. So that's where this would tie in. It's the same idea here. The Spirit of Christ in Noah at that time, preaching repentance to the people in Noah's days. Uh, By the time of Peter, these people would be spirits in prison, awaiting final judgment. Jesus was calling them to repentance through Noah before the flood. And another, another just slight variation to that is some people believe, yes, that's what he was doing, that's who it was, but he did it after his crucifixion and before his resurrection. Okay, So he either did it through Noah and the Spirit, or he actually went there himself before he ascended. Okay, a second view is that after Jesus died physically, he conquered sin once and for all. He immediately began to enjoy liberation. He was not constrained to the flesh anymore. He was not a victim of death. He was a victor of death. He was Lord over death. And because of that, he was Lord over all the victims of death in this world. And so he could move freely in the spiritual world as a victorious man. The risen Christ. So in his human spirit, before his body was raised from the tomb, he was able to go to um, disobedient and non-repentant evil spirits that are in prison, awaiting judgment, and announce to them his victory over sin and death and evil and his triumph. And this was not good news for the evil spirits. Who are these evil spirits in this view? 
The word spirit in verse 19 is almost always used to describe supernatural spirits. So, this view holds that Peter is describing fallen angels that fell just prior to the time of the flood. They came to earth and they married women, human women, on the earth. This was a huge sin. They were punished by imprisonment. And Jude 6 on your verse sheet talks about probably this. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So after his death, but before his ascension, Jesus would have stood before those fallen angels from the time of Noah and also announced his victory and who he was, uh, the victorious God. So now you can go home and decide which one of those you like. (laughs) Here's the point of the rest of the passage that I read. God waited patiently for the repentance of the people in Noah's day. With each nail that Noah drove into the ark for over 100 years, God desired their repentance and for them to come to him. He was patient and waited for them for 120 years, giving them an opportunity for them to come to him. Those who knew God, the eight people, including Noah, were brought safely through the flood or the waters because they entered the ark. And so the ark becomes a picture of salvation. In the church age, baptism corresponds to that and is also a figure of salvation. Just as the ark pictured salvation for Noah, baptism pictures salvation for the believer today. Um, In fact, the word saved in verse 21 means bring safely through. And Noah was brought safely through the waters. So we can get that image there. But we know that even though we identify that with Christianity, we know that the act of baptism doesn't bring about salvation. And Peter doesn't believe that either. Because you see that he says, baptism, the water, does not put away the filth of the flesh. He said that in those passages. What he does say is baptism is dependent on a conscience that is right with God. And a conscience right with God means that we have come to understand the work of Christ on the cross, our need for him, trading our unrighteousness for his sinless righteousness, and what has become a fact internally we display through baptism externally. And now these verses say God sees Jesus at his right hand as he intercedes for us every day. An incredible, glorious truth. In these passages that I just read, Peter talks about the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. He is presenting the doctrine of Jesus Christ to the early church because Peter's like God. He doesn't want anyone to perish. So he always tells the gospel in this way, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So in our suffering, we also learn to lay aside self 
and lift up others, but we have one other opportunity. We can choose obedience like Peter, like Jesus patterned for us. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. And as a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Okay, when we see here, we get a little confused because it says he's done with sin. We know Jesus is sinless, but he died as the innocent substitute for our sins. He was submitting to sin's penalty, which was due to us. And at his physical death, he finally terminated his relationship with sin, and he said, it is finished. It is finished. He died for sin once and for all, and since the benefit of that was new life for us, that we were brought to God, these should alter the way that we choose to live today. When we look at our past, sin should be dead to us as well, and we should turn around and say, it is finished. He did this for me, and my plan now is to live and walk in the will of God, not for the lust of the flesh. After Jesus demonstrated obedience We read that he was given a position of authority of all. When we demonstrate obedience, we walk into a new life, a fulfilling life, a satisfying life, a life with Christ that will continue until tomorrow. So we should have a sense of dying with Christ to sin and rising in him to a new life to be lived for God. Look at 1 John 5. This is love for God, to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. Peter even tells you how to do it in this verse that we just read. He says we need the right attitude of mind. It's fundamental to change how we think if we want to change our behavior. It is to take on the attitude of Jesus Christ. When it's hard to obey, we think about Jesus. When it's hard to be selfless, we think about Jesus. When it's hard to persevere through trials, we think about Jesus. And before he left this place on earth that often carries pain, he spoke words of victory and hope. Look at John 16. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And because of his victory, let's be women who do this. When we are in the midst of hard times, and not this. Johnny Erickson has a um, wonderful thought about the moment we get to see our Savior. She says, finally, you step forward into heaven's courts, and you drop to your knees to express thanks and gratitude. And the man of sorrows walks from his throne and approaches you. And he has absolutely no doubt of your appreciation, for he knows what you've suffered. He reaches towards you with his nail-scarred hands, and when you feel his hands in his, you are not embarrassed. Your own scars, your anguish, all those times you felt rejection and pain, have given you at least a tiny taste 
of what the Savior endured to purchase your redemption. Your suffering, like nothing else, has prepared you to meet God. For what proof would you have of your love if you were unscarred all through this life? You have something eternally precious in common with Christ. But to your amazement, the fellowship of sharing in his suffering begins to fade away like a dream. And now it's a fellowship of sharing in his joy and pleasure. Pleasure made more wonderful by suffering. And oh, the pain of earth, you begin to sigh. And then you smile, rising to your feet to live the life God has been preparing for you all along. Weeping may have endured for a night, but it is morning. And the joy has come. I wanted to close um, because it's Easter, and I found this song that I love by Fernando Ortega. Some of you may know it. That's perfect for us to meditate and pray on for this Easter week. And it's everything we just read about what he did for us, how he's here for us, and where he is now. And so for the next five minutes to close... I want to let everybody bow and pray and just meditate on these words.
All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. There are several great opportunities to worship.